This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, everyone. My name is Hannah Garibaldi, and thank you, Emily, for that very, very nice introduction. Uh, I am a PhD student in Film and Media Studies at UCSB. I'm so excited to introduce Jim Lebrecht and Nicole Noonan, the directors of Crip Camp. We are thrilled to have them here to discuss this remarkable film. Before we get going, I want to reiterate that we are dedicated to making this event as accessible as possible for all audiences. To that end, we will have live ASL interpretation from Katie throughout this discussion. Additionally, I would like to begin with brief image descriptions. As I mentioned, I'm Hannah. I'm sitting in a room with white walls, although they look yellowish in my lighting. Uh, I'm a white woman with blonde-ish wavy hair, uh, blue eyes, and I'm wearing a gray shirt. Uh, Jim and Nicole, could you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Jim Lebrecht, and uh, I am an older white guy with a very white goatee and brownish curly hair. I've got a kind of a blue Oakland t-shirt on, and um, I've got a red wall behind me with some posters on it. And I'm calling in from Oakland, the unceded land of the Ilani people. And Nicole? Oh, you're muted, I think. Sorry about that. I'm Nicole Newham, and I'm uh, Jim's co-director and co-producer on Crip Camp. And um, I am a 50-ish year old white woman with uh, blondish brown hair and uh, round glasses. And I'm sitting um, in a gray room with a, um, a picture of a cedar tree from British Columbia behind me. And um, calling in also from Oakland and really happy to be here. Awesome. So to begin this conversation, I want to ask you about your history working together and how you developed the idea for the film. Uh, can you explain a little bit about the origins of Crip Camp and the collaboration between the two of you as directors and producers? Perhaps, Nicole, you could start. Sure. So um, I have known Jim for about 20 years now. Um, I've been a documentary filmmaker for 26, 27 years, something like that. Um, and my three previous feature length documentaries that I co-directed and produced, um, Jim was the sound mixer and sound designer on them. Um, so over the years, we developed a really great relationship. And over the years, I got to learn a lot about disability, disability culture, and also kind of issues around accessibility and representation in the media, and in particular in documentary filmmaking by becoming friends with Jim. Um, I would come in to mix a film and Jim would be like, hold on a second, I've got to finish up this email. I'm trying to get the Sundance to make their filmmakers lodge accessible because I can't get up there. And all of these things for me, and I'm not necessarily proud of this because it just shows my ignorance, but all of it was very, um, you know, new to me. I hadn't really thought about how inaccessible our industry was. I hadn't really thought about the lack of representation of people with disabilities. Certainly in the kind of um, really um, powerful way that Jim was um, telling me about it. And it wasn't just me. Jim was sort of proselytizing to everyone in our industry. Anyone who would come in the office would sort of get an education, which is was wonderful. Um, and eventually I got lucky enough that Jim said, you know, 
Uh, would you like to go out to lunch? There's a bunch of kind of film ideas I have. I want to see more different kinds of films about disability than the ones that I'm seeing because I'm sitting here every day, you know, seeing hundreds of documentaries and 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 seeing very limited types of portrayals of disability on screen. And so he uh, he pitched me a few ideas and I thought they were pretty interesting, but I couldn't really get a handle on them. And as we were kind of heading back to my car, he said, but you know, what I really always wanted to see is a film about my summer camp. And I was like, hmm, you know, why? Um, and then he starts telling me about Camp Jeanette and it just literally like it to sound trite, it blew my mind because I realized that I didn't know about the history of disability rights. I realized that I had no mental model for thinking about a um, disability community of teenagers and hippies and campers and counselors that was filled with joy and humor and all of these things because my own brain had been so restricted by the media that I'd been um, fed. And so um, the thing that he said that was really the hook was I think that the profound experience of liberation that I and others had at this summer camp is somehow connected to the disability rights movement. And that was like, wow, like that is something really interesting to investigate. So um, I thought about it and I got very excited and I came back to Jim and said, I think this is really exciting. And I think the most exciting thing actually is your personal perspective on it and the fact that you lived it. And I think we should co-direct it together. And that's how it started. That's, that's fantastic. And I, I think it's so interesting because in terms of my knowledge of disability within the industry, it's really also only recently that it's come on my radar as well. Um, and I think that you both are such experts now at this point in discussing this. And I think um, it's just fantastic what you've done with this film and hopefully caused awareness um, or built awareness for this issue um, for a really wide audience, especially being on Netflix now, which is fantastic. Um, so before going much further, um, I also want to clarify that I'll be using people first language uh, to remain respectful to those within the disability community. Uh, so that's saying people with disabilities instead of um, identity based language, which is disabled person. Um, I'm doing that to remain respectful um, to people within the disability community, although I realize that uh, even though this kind of identity-based language has been used problematically in the past, it's become a matter of pride now within the disability community. Um, but I think that this brings up a larger conversation about the nature of disability itself. Um, within the film, we see a variety of different ways in which disability is determined as identity, as medical label, uh, as legal categorization. Um, how do you define disability and how did that impact your choices as filmmakers? Uh, maybe, Jim, we can start with you this time. Thank you. Um, that's a great question. And I don't think we've been asked that question before. And this is easily our 60th maybe Q&A that we've done since uh, we've, uh, we've uh, brought our, our baby out into the world. Um, and this is, you know, I, the interesting thing for me is um, I've had people within the industry kind of self kind of confide in me that they have a disability, but it's a hidden disability. And, but because of the stigma around disability, people are very, very reluctant to admit it if they feel like they can pass. And, um, uh, and this is a problem within the Motion Picture Academy. So then I talked to the um, head of the membership in the 
the academy about, in fact. So I would say it's just the umbrella around disability is very wide. And that there's probably what we might consider a mythical norm or your normative body, which really doesn't exist, but that if there's something about your body that really kind of affects your, your day, be it endurance, be it uh, that you're low vision or, you know, beyond really beyond kind of the traditional blind or deaf or, you know, a wheelchair user. Um, but that if there are things in your day that, that really kind of call for you to kind of approach life or, you know, deal with life different from that quote unquote norm, then you really should look at the fact that probably you can consider yourself disabled. I think this is def also an issue, I think, for people with illnesses, illnesses that are not going to go away now. And that, um, that identifying this way, I think for some people initially feels like a defeat or an ad admission that something bad has happened. Um, I don't think that anybody wishes upon anybody that they acquire a disability or lifelong or debilitating illness. But one of the things that I've learned over time as we've had these incredible discussions is that disability is a natural part of life. That this is nothing to be ashamed of. You know, you need to process for yourself, but you know, how these things affect your life, but that um, if one can look at it, not like Pollyanna, like, wow, this is the best thing that ever happened to me, but rather that, that this is something that doesn't have to be, um, th that this could be an opportunity for growth, for uh, a new, you know, a new look at life. And that also there's an incredible community of people out here. No, I, I, I think that's a fantastic description. I, um, I personally have dealt with chronic illness and I've never known if I situ I'm situated within the disability community or something else. And I think that there's a lot of um, kind of issues with defining that boundary. So I was really curious about what you had to say about that. And I think that that's very accurate. And it's interesting to hear more about the academy as well and, and this idea of passing, you know, and, and um, not, you know, exemplifying or, or acting and letting it be known that you have, you know, some kind of disability or impairment or chronic illness or something like that. Um, so moving on, maybe I, I want to jump into the film itself more specifically here. Um, so you spoke to many individuals who are involved in the camp, tracing their experiences as young adults through their contributions to the disability rights movement. How much, how much did the input from your interviewees factor into the structure of the film and how involved were they in the actual production process? Maybe Nicole, you could hit this one. Yeah, sure. So we, um, you know, I think the very first phone call we made when we were considering even taking on this film was to Judy Human. Um, you know, Jim was like, let's call Judy because let's see about this theory we have that the camp had something to do with the movement. And Judy said, yeah, you know, this camp was the place where we came together to go apart and where we discovered that the problems we were facing were not problems with ourselves, but were structural problems and made connections between the um, civil rights movement, which we were observing on television, you know, and at night in our bunks, we would say like, hey, what if we had a movement of our own, you know, and this kind of idea was born. And so 
That was very exciting. And all the way along, you know, we reached out to many um, of Jim's uh, both friends, people he'd kept in touch with from camp across the years, but also like people that he knew had gone to Camp Jeanette when he wasn't at, you know, at a different time, either a little earlier or a little later, but who also were part of the kind of movement in the community in Berkeley. And we started to develop relationships with folks and get into their um, camp stories. And like Denise Sher Jacobson, who, um, you know, for me is one of the most striking people in Crip Camp, um, she had actually thought a lot about um, Camp Jeanette and had been writing a book about it for a long time about her own personal experience. And she had a lot of theories as well about not only the camp's relationship to the movement, but um, sort of its relationship to disability, um, kind of like personal growth and identity. Um, and also she had really interesting um, information about the history of the camp and everything. So these ideas and these early conversations we had were totally woven into you know, our, our conception of the story and, and our early treatments were almost kind of like a, a thesis statement that the making of the film itself was going to have to prove. So um, we had, you know, fairly early on found the footage of the camp, um, but had decided to tell the story even before we found that footage. We were going to cast actors and recreate scenes from camp if we couldn't find the footage. And then the footage of the campers themselves in the movement activities, like in marches and, you know, showing up at these pivotal moments, that was something that we didn't know if we would ever actually be able to show, you know? So um, in a sense, I think of it, this film, and I think Jim does too, is like this kind of community made, a it's a film of, um, that's this, a community telling its formative story to itself, you know? And then our job was like, can we make that immersive? And can we make that cinematic? And can we actually bring you there? And it was almost like we wanted so badly to be able to do it that we found the resources and got people on board and found the money and spent the literally years it took to get these gems of footage in that would show the campers you know, at this march or in their apartment in Berkeley or all of these things. But I mean, even when I think about it now, I think it's it was almost magical. You know, it was like this story needed to be surfaced and and needed to be told, and it just needed some, you know, folks with the um with the strong belief in that and the patience to make it happen. Yeah, that's fantastic. I actually I was going to ask you about the archival footage because I, I work in archives and I was curious about how you got a hold of all this wonderful, wonderful material. Um, and it sounds like it was a long process to get all of this, but it wound up piecing together into this beautiful film. Um, but speaking of that footage, uh, one of the aspects of the film that resonated most with me was your decision to actually augment that archival footage by naming people within the images. So you actually saw their names. Um, those who were at, camp, at the camp and later joined the disability rights movement. Uh, rather than allowing the footage to simply show anonymous social actors on screen, you identified these people, explicitly signaling their presence and designated their importance. Uh, not only was this useful for narrative coherence, but it disrupted the possibility of overlooking them or objectifying their images, frequent problems with depictions of disability. As directors, how did you balance this, these complex issues of representation for a group that has often been problematically depicted on screen? 
Uh, maybe Jim, you could take this one. Sure. Um, I also think that you point out something here is that we really took pains to really uh, artistically do things like identify folks, you know, as opposed to uh, just this kind of classic kind of lower third, but I know this footage of this demonstration in Washington, you know, we had kind of people's names following them. And I, it's actually, Nicole, it's one of my favorite things visually in, in the film in regards to kind of our presentation along with how we were doing captioning for people that we might have difficulty understanding. Um, I mean, disability history is very, very rich, first off. And, and this is just one story about a particular group of people from Camp Jeanette and kind of how, as their lives went out, that there were other people and, and wow. these stories within the history. But traditionally, there's been some folks, some people that really haven't always ha haven't had the kind of the attention on them. So I, um, I, 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 and so I, I, you know, I think one of the, you know, it's just important to make sure that we could identify people, even if they, you know, weren't, uh, central characters like uh, Kitty Cohen or so that just, hey, you know, within the community, these are very important people. And these are names that people should know. It was it was really a um, part of the hat trick we had to accomplish in the storytelling of taking people from the world of the camp where it was so immersive and they had met their friends and then bringing them into a world where what we wanted to achieve was this almost kind of magical feeling like now I'm seeing my friends in this news footage, you know, now I'm finding them in this footage. And we had this incredible editor, Eileen Meyer, who really has, I think, like an incredible gift at understanding how to work with imagery so that the piece of archival footage is not seen just as an illustration of what you know the scene or the, the 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 this part in the drama or the story but it's actually being read by the audience both for what it contains and also as the kind of archival fragment that it is you know and so i feel like that identification of the name was something that we thought would be really important because it would it comes at it comes kind of at that moment in the film where you're still kind of in that transition but from from camp to you know the movement storytelling that comes later and I think so that identif the identification was also kind of signaling that to the viewer, you know, like, oh, like giving them that moment of, oh, wow, you know, so then from that point on in the film, they would, they would see that and that would, it, it helped it make, it helped us make that transition to more frag fragmented little news archives kind of being not, not feeling distancing, but feeling like um, they were still a continuation of this story of friends across history that we're trying to trying to follow. Yeah, and like you going back to what you said earlier, it makes it more immersive too because you realize how connected all these aspects of the film are and it it just I haven't seen that done in very many documentaries and I think it was just so powerful in this particular film to have that um that kind of through line, those connections made. Um so another question here, uh, Crip Camp cleverly establishes several entry points into the narrative for a range of audience members through the film's use of a variety of interviewees with varying experiences of disability. For instance, we hear from a camp counselor who was initially afraid when he saw the campers. We hear from a reporter whose obliviousness to the community shifted when she herself acquired a disability. 
and we listen to the stories of campers themselves. How much did your consideration of your audience as being comprised of people with diverse perspectives and different understandings of disability, especially going on Netflix, which is a very broad, very broad audience base. How did that impact your directorial decisions with regards to how you presented your subject matter? Um, maybe Jim, you could take this. Sure. Well, I think that our audience, our target audience was everyone. And that one of the goals that we had for our film was that we could reframe what it meant, what disability meant to people with and without disabilities. So, um, you know, uh, if it's, so I, 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 so I don't think we were really kind of, we wanted to make sure certainly that we were representing the community in an accurate and respectful and loving way. There's no doubt about that, but, but um, really it, uh, you certainly don't want to just preach to the choir. You know, you want to open up minds and have discussions, which I think the, the film does. Yeah, we, we wanted it to be a, um, like an immersive journey. Like we had a, a, a friend and colleague who said when he watched a fine cut of the film, he said, it, I don't know quite how you've done it, but it feels like I've landed on a planet where I don't speak the language and I'm not really sure of myself. And then I come to find out time has passed and I've made friends and I understand the language and, and I feel like I'm a part of part of it. And we really tried to orchestrate that first immersive camp section of the film to feel like that. So in, it's like, it was like a journey where the audience themselves would experience growth. And I think that went, you know, the growth was probably a lot larger for those of us who don't have disabilities. <laughs> um, but still there were like moments that would challenge you and make you aware of your own discrimination um, or, or implicit bias. And then, but then we wouldn't linger on those. We would grab your hand and pull you forward um, or give you something to laugh at or make you feel like you were a part of something. And then we would challenge you again, you know, and, um, and that it was finding that balance um, so that it's like a pleasurable experience. But when we're like, we've heard people say that they feel like they're experiencing, experiencing emotions that they can't even name, you know, but they, but it feels like they're changing, you know, like they're actually growing or changing as a person. And that was, um, that's really gratifying for us to hear because that was, that was sort of the goal, you know, we don't want it to be like, now we're going to educate you. And you also don't want it to be, um, you know, we, we didn't want it to be, to feel distancing by virtue of being like so insider that there were no kind of on ramps in, you know, and I think that what was really awesome was that we had a disabled and a non-disabled director working together. So we had both viewpoints and we were trying to figure out like to find the emotional sweet spot together. And, um, and I think that was like a actually very unique thing that, that is part of why Crip Camp is unique. Yeah, I think, you know, that um, the very beginning is just so good in this film, because I think it does immediately capture your attention, you know, especially I would imagine if if you aren't as familiar with disability. I mean, you you see these people having so much fun at this camp and, and you know, enjoying them, just having a great time. And I think that's a great way to kind of preface this experience and the experience of disability for a wider population. Um, and that kind of leads into my next question. Um, 
This film does an excellent job interrogating and disrupting stereotypes, which have frequently been applied to people with disabilities. You open the film, as I mentioned, with campers dancing and having fun. You address the issue of sexuality, and you even point to the assumptions frequently made about people who have a disability as being sick. Uh, how important was it for you to incorporate discussions of these topics, and what do you hope viewers take away from these interventions? I guess either one of you can take this one because you both answered the last question. I am. My, my initial thought when you asked that question is, is that we didn't really set out for any of those kind of goals. They were just naturally there. That disability, our community um, is so multifaceted. And, the, and that, you know, it's not like you can really really put us in a small container, but that our life experiences, especially when we are allowed to really live our lives the way that we choose, are so multi-faceted. Uh, multi so, um, but I think that, and you know, Nicole touched upon our collaboration. I mean, I think that that enabled us to really um, dig in so deep and so um, authentically into what the community was about. And I think that, you know, when one of the things that when Nicole and I were having that awesome lunch was the fact that I was seeing these different documentaries, but I wasn't seeing something that to me felt quite right. And, and, and I think that what we did get right was telling it through our own voices versus someone somebody kind of looking down from above. And, um, and so when you do that and you are open and you, and documentaries kind of have their own kind of life and they reveal themselves that we had, we were fortunately able to kind of work that way. And, and that's why it feels so rich and diverse. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, completely true. And I, I, I think it's interesting that it was so natural that you wound up confronting all these topics and all these stereotypes. Cause I, I you know, as watching, watching it myself, I was like, oh my goodness, they're hitting on all these issues, you know, that have come up that I've, you know, read about and heard about and, and the stereotypes we've seen on the screen and depictions of disability um, on the silver screen in terms of Hollywood history as well. So I think that, you know, this film confronts a lot and it's just amazing that it came about naturally. Well, um, Thank you. I mean, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that. I would say that actually you, I would say that that was, um, I mean, it is true that it's like part of the makeup of the kind of like the constellation of one of, of, of the multifaceted lives of disabled people. That's totally true. But like Jim, you know, you, I would really listen to you when you would talk about the pain of particular misperceptions and particular things, and we would, you know, elevate those to the top of the heap, you know, like we knew we wanted to talk to tackle sexuality. And so like when very late, actually, we'd interviewed Denise about three times and it was like at the third time we interviewed her, she said, I think there's a story I need to tell you. And she told us that story, um, that incredible story of her having an affair with a bus driver you know, when she was in her 20s and, and getting gonorrhea and then the surgeon assuming she must actually have appendicitis because he couldn't believe she would be sexually active as a disabled woman and removing her appendix. And, um, and you know, I think we, we 
we had in our in our minds like if this film can can address that particular misperception and particular you know pain point that would be really important um you know uh and we always wanted to try to get at these things in very complex ways so the fact that we can show sexuality as like the like that 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 particular part of coming up against a societal misperception that was so painful for denise but then on the other hand show sexuality as just kind of like part of the whole like you know teenage coming of age thing um and I, like all that was really came i mean i think again it gets back to like how amazing it was to have jim as a co-director on the project because like you were really like clear about what were those things that were so hard not to ever see on screen or not to have people understand and you were so patient with us <laughs> you know helping us to understand them so i think i think that that it was uh it was actually you know I, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I may have been a little self-effacing in, in kind of how, you know, I, I definitely, there were certain subjects that I, Nicole and I talked about very early that were these kind of pain points of why aren't people talking about this and, and certainly, um, sexuality was a, you know, a big part of it. And, um, so Anyway, thank you for saying that, Nicole. Yeah. <laughs> well, it worked out really well, I think, because I, I just was shocked by how much it covered, you know, in the space of a short film, how much it dealt with and took head on, you know, these these misconceptions that have been around for a long time. Um, and maybe, you know, speaking a little bit more about after this film has been released, um, it, it premiered at Sundance. It's as I mentioned, been released on Netflix, and I think most people probably at this event saw it on Netflix. Um, and it seems to be designed to spark a broader conversation about disability and accessibility. Uh, you also had a comprehensive impact campaign over this summer, programming various virtual events and an impressive array of guests and workshops um, dealing with topics brought up by the film. I think I saw there was even one on, on sexuality. Um, so what in your eyes has the reception of the film accomplished? And maybe you can speak a little bit about this impact campaign. Um, either of you can take it at this point. I, I, I mean, um, I think straight out of Sundance, um, we started seeing some impact for the film that, uh, that every year local politicians get to choose a film they wanna see and they chose our film. And we heard tell within a couple of weeks that um, uh, some kind of a county supervisor said, we need to re-look at our transportation for services for people with disabilities. And so, I mean, that was like kind of an early indicator. Um, but the impact campaign in itself is a kind of a wonderful story. Um, Nicole, I feel like you tell tell it better than I do. If you wouldn't mind jumping in on that, no, I'm, ha I'm happy to. Um, we had this uh, um, impact campaign that had been brilliantly planned by two leaders of the disability justice movement, um, Stacy Park Milburn and Andrea Levant, and we were absolutely 
thrilled when they agreed to take this job on of kind of taking the funding that we had raised and some of the ideas that we had um, for how we wanted the film to reach audiences and just kind of like make their own judgments and design their own plan for how they thought the film could best be used. And for, for folks who aren't familiar with the disability justice movement, it's um, an evolution of the disability rights movement um, that is um, has a, a bunch of really amazing precepts which are worth Googling and reading about. But one of them is that um, it's important to have the leadership in the movement of people who have been multiply marginalized and the most impacted. Um, and that includes within the disability movement itself. So um, BIPOC people, um, LGBTQ people um, within the community. And so we really wanted, we were very excited about the work of disability justice movement. And we wanted to make a, we wanted to make the film a connection between the film and what we thought kind of represented that revolutionary world changing spirit of the work in the 70s and what was similar to that today. And so um, they had all these ideas, but when the pandemic hit, um, these ideas of kind of like recreating Camp Jeanette in Berkeley and bringing people in and doing, you know, multi-day workshops and things were impractical and impossible. And so they had this brilliant idea of um, uh, having this virtual experience that would be a virtual summer camp that was 16 sessions, one session every Sunday, and um, taught by leaders within the disability justice movement on topics like Black disability history and sexuality and internalized ableism and all of these incredible things. Everything from that to like how to raise money and how to how to uh, do online activism and. It was just an example of how the disability community um, are the people that you want to have on hand um, when you need to um, punt and reinvent and MacGyver something because um, people who are used to living in a world that wasn't built for them uh, know how to do that better than anyone else. And also, um, you know, it, it points out the, the, the uh, I think the lesson that we've all been learning in the pandemic around accessibility and inclusion and so many um, people were able to join this. We thought we might have 500 people, but because the film was leading people to this platform and also because they, they did such an amazing job of making it accessible to everyone, um, you know, with interpretation and captioning and um, visual descriptions and so many things that um, it would take us like an hour to go through all of the different kind of accommodations and design features that they to, to make it um, inclusive of people with so many different disabilities. We had 10,000 people from all over the world sign up for it and take part and there's offshoot Facebook groups and it really has um, actually been movement building. Um, and capacity building for the movement in the middle of the pandemic, which seems, you know, like such a beautiful thing to spring from the telling of this um, particular story out of history, you know. Yeah. I, uh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna say, I uh, pasted into the chat uh, a link to a, a book, which is a disability justice primer that was put out by a, a group called Sins Invalid. And um, and their primer is available to download or purchase. And I, it's been part of my education, you know, and really, really, uh, you know, learning a lot more than. But the volumes that 
I have wound up learning about my community in the last year been pretty huge, but this has been a huge resource for me. That's great. Thank you for posting that. I'm sure people will find it really helpful. Um, so before I turn to audience questions, um, I wanted to ask a little bit more about the legacy of the disability rights movement, because um, this film concludes sort of at the ADA, although we're obviously seeing interviewees from today talking about um, the movement. But I'm just curious, you know, where you, you both think we are today in terms of disability rights, especially, um, Nicole, you were talking about this wonderful um, impact campaign and how the film was kind of a catalyst for this new movement maybe that is starting. Um, so I guess I'm just curious, where do you see, we, like how far have we come, especially that we're coming up on the 30th anniversary or we are in the 30th anniversary of um, the ADA. Um, so maybe Jim, you could start with this one. Actually, the uh, disability justice movement, I think, if, if uh, you know, if this was a pop quiz, I believe is at least 15 years old. And, and for me, as I learn more and more about um, this part of my community, which really, the whole concept really started with Stacy and a number of other people here in the, in the Bay Area, um, I realized these are the modern warriors. You know, the folks that were inside the HEW office in 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 uh, in seventy seven, you know they were people who were young younger in their twenties and thirties, and same thing for this group. Um, there is still so much to be done, you know. And as Nicole, as uh, excuse me, as Cheryl, uh, <laughs> Denise Sheriff Jacobson says, at the near the end of the film, you could write this law, right? But if society's attitudes don't change, not a lot is going to happen. And we're seeing this play out right now where, you know, in the Supreme Court, the efforts to strike down the Affordable Care Act really threatens um, access to health care for people with pre-existing conditions. And despite all the rhetoric, I don't, um, um, it's, it's hard to have faith that that's really going to happen. Um, as somebody who personally has experienced what the relief was, in my life when all of a sudden I knew I wasn't going to be denied health care insurance for the first time. And that, those were, that was released. It was a, it was a real level of anxiety. And um, I think that there are constant uh, attacks on the ADA and it's, and it's, um, you know, it, the law itself in regards to, you know, people saying, well, you know, you can't sue unless, you know, once you've warned somebody, and it's like, what other group has to wait for their civil rights? You know, you know, people have had 30 years to do things like get their businesses, accept, you know, come up to standards. And, and those businesses that haven't, haven't taken responsibilities that other have and have not taken on the cost of doing business like other businesses have. And they should not be rewarded for trying to skirt this. So I, um, you know, it's, it's like you're saying, you know, I need six more months. You've had 30 years. I'm just scraping the surface here. Yeah, yeah no, I, I think, you know, and it's interesting because I've done a little research on, um, you know, even just exhibition, film exhibition, you know, and, and places that aren't accessible and, and how pop-up cinemas have had to form to cater to deaf and hard of hearing audiences, you know, because they're not getting captioning 
in you know a normal cinematic environment and it's true it's 30 years you think <laughs> you think that by this point there would be larger shifts we'd see um having taken place um nicole did you have anything to add before we move on to audience questions well i might just share a couple of stories out of our brief theatrical experience before the pandemic hit we um we were uh you know going to be the we found out we were going to be the opening night film at sundance um which was hugely exciting and the taylor swift documentary was going to be right after us um and also also exciting um and so especially for my kids because it turned out we were going to share a party with the taylor swift documentary <laughs> so they were they were thrilled but anyway we had a meeting with sundance to talk about like how how it was going to be really cool we were going to get these accessible vehicles and we were going to be brought to the theater and da da, -da and and then they said, and we're really excited to tell you that we've expanded the number of seats in the theater from, I think, um, like six to 11 or something like that for, for wheelchair users. And so they showed us a map and there were like two wheelchair seats up in the front right and two wheelchair seats in the front left and then two in the back. And, you know, and, and Jim was like, okay, well, um, when other film teams come in and they might have like 25 or 30, I think we actually had like 70 people or something in our, our entourage of like yes, yes. people who are us and people who worked on the film and people who funded the film and, you know, people who, um, yeah, were associated with us. And, and, uh, he said, don't they usually come and kind of sit in the middle of the theater at the front together? And they said, yeah. And Jim said, well, that's what we want to do. And also like just in our entourage, I think we had nine wheelchair users. So that meant that there are 11, there were two seats then available for any media who were wheelchair users or any other patrons who wanted to buy a ticket to come see one of the biggest disability films that had yet come out. And it was, you know, they had, they had thought through a lot and they have been incredible partners with us, but they hadn't thought through that. And to their incredible credit, they came right back to us and said, okay, we're ripping up all the seats in the front of the theater to create this big space so your entire entourage can sit together. Um, and, you know, then we had this other incredible experience where we were told that they had just been donated some amazing closed captioning devices and that was going to make the captioned version available to folks and the captioning devices didn't work in some of the older theaters and we had this huge screening where we had a, a deaf activist who was really incredible who was supposed to be moderating a panel following the screening and she couldn't actually watch the film herself before moderating the panel because she the captioning device was down and she said why don't you have open captions and we were like you know we don't know and then we talked to sundance and netflix and within you know a day we were having open caption screenings at sundance so i'm just saying that because i feel like we are on a a cusp of a lot of these things um finally happening and um but there's still so many barriers to break down and i think the stance we've tried to take and encourage people to take is, you know, just think of um, think of access as this kind of like learning process and be willing to be humble and admit when you've made a mistake and then figure out how to fix it. 
And, um, and if you're constantly trying to fix it and, you know, now the next festival we went to, we said we need to have open caption screenings and they were like, okay, and we did it. It wasn't hard, but it just hasn't been happening. So anyway. Well, I think that's fantastic because that shows how much the film itself in this kind of like extra textual or not even within the film and not even in reception, but even in the, the structuring of the screenings, you're, you're having an impact, right, on how things are possibly going to change and bringing awareness to these issues with accessibility that have been in place for a long time, but maybe just haven't been on people's radar. But I think that's like just another testament to the film and your guys' production um, for the impact that it's had. Yeah, I mean, we've had that effect at, at Netflix. They've been incredible partners. And so the number of uh, languages that um, audio description is available in or uh, captioning is way larger than they've done in the past. And a script has also been written uh, so that people who are deafblind can download it. A 163-page script wow. so that they can experience the film. And, wow. Um, um, and I actually was digging around for it the other day, but if you don't find it immediately, check back on the Crypt Camp website for Netflix. Um, I, I just kind of flagged this. I have not been able to find it lately, and I let them know. But this has been just, you know, this, you know, accessibility, right? Or, or you know, the ADA. The ADA is not a ceiling; it's a floor, right? And and success for accessibility is doing having the attitude that. This is something you want to do versus you have to do. And when you just change that little switch there, a lovely and wonderful and, and great things can happen. Yeah, no, that's amazing. That's amazing. I, I just think it's so cool that this film has had that impact as well. Um, so I'm gonna move to audience questions because we only have about 12 minutes or so left. Um, okay, so one of the questions, um, one of the most impactful parts of the film for me was when Nancy Rosenblum was talking and there were no subtitles and I didn't think anyone understood her, but one of the campers repeats back what she says and builds on it, showing that he understood everything. It made me realize the problem was not with her. Was there a conscious choice to not give Nancy subtitles and could you expand on that choice? Yeah, we, we Jim and I, um, thank you for the question. When Jim and I got the hard drive of all the camp footage and sat down and watched it all together, um, we watched that scene and we both cried and we both looked at each other and we said, this is the scene that's going to be the most important scene in the film, you know? And, um, and we talked even at that um, first viewing about how we wanted to give people that immersive experience of feeling like they were sitting at the table with with the other campers and experiencing what you know Jim say at 15 would have been experiencing which is that he wanted to understand her he 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 had the patience to listen um and and he and he couldn't but he knew she was saying something important and it turned out that it took a, a lot of work to build um to build the film up to the point where a non-disabled audience that wasn't used to dealing with speech effect. What is Denise? Disability called? affected speech. Disability is affected speech is what Denise has recently said. She would, um, she, she thinks is a good term. And, and so I, I want to use that. Um, but, uh, you know, would, would feel comfortable with, and indeed some of the first times we showed that raw footage just on its own to people, 
they felt so uncomfortable that they were like, I don't think you can even put that in the film unless you have subtitles, you know? Um, but by structuring the film such that, you know, the audience felt like they were coming to camp and they loved camp and they got the point that in some of the early, through some of the earlier scenes, that part of what was beautiful about the camp culture was this kind of level of people, you know, accommodating each other and listening to each other and having patience. Um, in fact, there's this one line that we didn't put in the film, but Lionel, Jim's camp counselor from Alabama, was talking about this aspect of camp. And he said, and he, he was talking about how after camp, he would see people who didn't have patience for um, people with, with this kind of speech. And he would just say, listen, MFR, <laughs> just listen. <laughs> So, but anyway, you know, we, we, uh, we tried to design that whole first part of the film to build up to that moment so that people would feel, feel brought along and, um, and, re and really understand that. And then what turned out to be so beautiful was that, that some of those same precepts are then become really pivotal in the 504 building when people are trying to create community and build a movement in the 504 and they have to actually just listen to each other and have patience for each other's differences. And we hoped that would be kind of a metaphor for, you know, not just what it takes to build a strong movement in disability, um, but in, in, in general, you know, it's like what, <laughs> it's like what we're missing right now, kind of in a, in a lot of our discourse. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that that's great. And also thinking about, um, also communication across groups because we also see the Black Panther, you know, they're the they're helping, you know, during this the um, occupation and everything and providing food. And so that building of coalition and that collaboration across groups and listening to each other, um, I think that that really comes through in this film as well. Um, okay, let's move on to another question. Um, oh, okay, so this is about the Black Panther. Um, so this is from Catherine Nesky. I was fascinated by the help the activists received from the Black Panthers. The way that part of the story was fil filmed, the way that that part of the story was filmed evoked for me the concept of a multi-directional memory, the ways in which remembrance cuts across diverse experiences and support acts of solidarity beyond identity politics. Is this something you evoked when building your narrative and work on your archival materials? Wow, that's a great question too. So, you know, it's, it's almost hard for me to answer this because although I wasn't at the 504 sit in and I wasn't crawling up the stairs of the uh, Capitol, so much of this film is about memory for me. And, and I think that, that what I've always appreciated about the film that we've made is that because we were, had the time and the resources to really find so much of this archival that it does feel like a memory being told back. And the way that the interviews, and especially Corbett O'Toole, who was in there and the way she talks about it, it really, um, you know, I think that we, we wind up having a really just immersive experience. Yeah, you know, I think that, um... It's interesting because I think that that particular moment, those 28 days that people were in that building, 
um, there was so much um, kind of this sense of like a utopian community that had been created and people, as you can see in the footage, felt so energized and so connected and that carried over. But there has been a lot of difficulty in the disability rights movement too across history with especially with um, people of color, um, you know, feeling marginalized and actually also feeling like their role in the history was was marginalized and 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 that you know, Dennis Phillips, um, who is the blind African-American man who, um, who, you know, is in the film, you know, actually said, uh, he said he felt a lot of pain when he played such a pivotal role in that story. And then it became known as a story of white women. And, um, and so, you know, we felt a responsibility and a desire to try to, um, show that show that moment um that existed and uh, as it was and to give the black panthers and to give dennis and to give um you know margaret irvine who leads the hunger strike um in the film you know their their rightful place in that story but also we were consciously trying to say like this is something that this this very kind of you know um uh cross movement solidarity and kind of like um, umbrella disability culture that was created in that moment um, is something that we wanted to hold up and for, for, for people and, um, uh, you know, as something to aspire to. Yeah, um, so I just have a couple more questions. It, it sounds like there's a question that a lot of people have been asking. Um, do you have any thoughts or advice on navigating the film industry as a person with a disability? Um, I think either of you can probably take this one because you're both within the film industry and probably have either seen or, or you know, dealt with that firsthand. Um, well, you lead me into something that I was going to just post here in the chat, and which I'm going to do right now. Oops. Oopsie daisy. Um, the Academy is having an event on the 26th and they filmed uh, three different videos around representation and different disability issues. And it's open to the public. It's five o'clock Pacific on the 26th. And uh, while well, we're seeing, uh, seeing to have what people are talking about. And indeed, um, you know, uh, we have a long way to go in regards to uh, representation, the number of people, uh, authentic casting, um, uh, and this all kind of starts from the, the ground up in regards to being able to build one's career in the business. And so it, it's, uh, I, I think we're seeing a lot of interesting movement, both on shows that are going into development or starting to come out with really great disability themes. But um, it's going to take the industry to really apply the same kind of attention to diversity and inclusion through internships and other opportunities that have been fortunately afforded other communities and marginalized to bring that into the disabled community. Um, so unfortunately, that is the end of our time for this discussion. I want to thank again Jim Lebrecht and Nicole Noonan for graciously being willing to participate in this interview. I'd also like to thank our ASL interpreter Katie and those at the Carsey Wolf Center for creating this event. And thanks to all of the, those of you who joined this conversation. Have a fantastic evening. Thank you.
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.